Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Here on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society. Reveal the embedded codes and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, media historian and theorist Caroline Jack. Now we have a whole different class of non-humans that arguably have some kind of agency or ability to act. So you look at how many bots are active on Twitter. You think about the algorithmic analysis that's happening behind the scenes at a lot of startups that we're talking about. Dr. Jack, a postdoctoral scholar at Data and Society Research Institute, explores how powerful people and institutions have communicated the role of business in civic life. Today, she's going to help us think broadly and deeply about corporate personhood, imagined machines, epistemological chaos, in other words, media and persuasion. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. I'm speaking to you today while the Senate hearings on uh, Russia and Trump uh, play on the television behind me. I turned down the volume so I could do this. These hearings are real. I mean, they're real. It's big. I mean, it's as big as Watergate, I guess, or one of the other sort of things that went on in the course of my own life. The story here is supposedly about how, you know, Russia undermined our elections or worked in in some kind of collusion with the Trump campaign to undermine Hillary Clinton and her efforts. But this whole story here, however important, however... Uh, high stakes this one seems to be, it's really a, a subordinate story to the Trump administration and Bannon and I guess Putin's, you know, other much larger effort. And the, the bigger story here, the one that we're trying, I guess, really not to think about so much, really is the next world war. The idea that another war another turning, as it were, another war is inevitable, and that uh, Trump and Putin are setting up a new alliance, that this is uh, the alignment of Trump and Putin and various larger business efforts against China and the Arabs and the developing world for global resources. And it's big and it's scary and it even kind of puts climate change on the back burner, at least in terms of chronology. Uh, I guess they want to get to this war first before climate change really hits the fan. And it's almost too big to think about. And maybe it just is too big to think about. And I don't find it healthy to think about it. I don't find I'm, I'm armed with strategies for stopping these kinds of things 
from going on as I watch TV, as I look at social media, as I even follow the tweets to the good stories compared to the bad ones. And we all know on some level it's wrong to just throw up our arms and say, oh, forget about it. I'm just not even going to look at any of this anymore. I just don't want to know. The reason why it's wrong is because in some ways that's the very purpose of these disinformation campaigns. This is what Cambridge Analytica is being paid to do. That's one of the uh, uh, big data research firms that uh, composes individualized uh, messages designed to exploit each of our uh, separate psychology, and whether it's going to right-wing people or uh, uh, you know people in red states trying to provoke race hatred or economic confusion or to promote a kind of anti-cosmopolitanism, or whether it's the messaging they do to left-wingers through the very same kinds of social media, uh, just a different sort of story, stories that are designed to deflate our enthusiasm for a candidate or generate despair and cynicism, or promote a kind of a relativism where we decide that, well, everybody lies and it's all stupid, so I don't care. And I guess those are the messages that have been coming to me and most of my listeners through these these sorts of media. But that doesn't mean that it isn't true on some level, that the cynicism and despair maybe are emotions that can take us to another place, a potentially healthier place. Not of fingers in our ears, la 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 la, I'm not going to listen, but where our focus is on a different scale, it's on a different plane, one through which we may be able to achieve some amount of coherence. I remember after 9-11, the bombing at the World Trade Center, and my concern, obviously, as everyone else is, my concern about uh, global issues was elevated for some time after that. I remember my friend, a comic book writer named Grant Morrison, came to New York, and he's a real character. He's a, a very... Uh, a very positive person, put it that way. He's he has no uh, no problems with confidence. He just moves forward. And uh, Grant came to New York, and he was all happy and excited about the. They were letting him do Superman at DC and letting him do some Batman stuff. He felt like he had the keys to the the family car, is the way he put it at the time. And we went. We had lunch at Life Cafe on on Avenue B. It's gone now, but. Uh, I asked him, I said, well, what about the, the world events? What about, you know, what's going on in, in Iraq and the Middle East? What about 9-11? And doesn't he care about these issues? How is he going to address them? How is he going to speak with his readers about this and inform people? And he said, ah, Doug, you know, that's just grown-ups. <laughs> the grown-ups are having their fights and, and, and they don't care what we have to say anyway. So just let grown-ups be grown-ups and we can do the stuff that we like here and write comic books and make movies and just have fun and let the grown-ups do this ridiculous stuff that they've been doing since the beginning of time. And I rejected that. You know, certainly at the time, I rejected that. You know, that uh, we we matter. You know, we, we do. We matter to politics. We matter to global events. What we say, what we think, uh, what we broadcast. And I pushed on that for the last what has it been, 20 years since that happened, 15 years? And I've pushed to the point where with all these nonfiction books and getting my PhD and all and 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 getting out there and having articles and, and, and you know, trying to push uh, some public intellectual activity, I've gotten into a position where, yeah, I get to interact with the leaders of the left, at least the uh, institutional left. And for all of my interaction, for all of my opportunity, I really don't see it as the best high leverage point for change. It's just not. Uh, you know, what What most of the organized left wants to do is various forms of opposition research on Donald Trump and then uh, publicity to reveal how awful he is or what he's done wrong. And this, this 
way of working to, you know, to mirror the guy that you don't like in order to understand everything he's doing and then broadcast it to others, that's profoundly dysregulating all by itself. You know, that's a terrific challenge to one's coherence, you know, to do, to do opposition research and then live as a mirror image to crazy. While it's important, I'm glad there's some people doing it, and I'm glad there's judges and investigators and senators who are are going to continue enacting justice and discipline and uncover things and if if things are as bad as as we suspect or as corrupt. But I don't know if that's the best thing for all of us to be doing all the time. I don't know if tracking the relative progress of this activity is the best way to live our lives? Is this the best way for the other couple of hundred million people to spend their time and energy when we are on the brink of so many different simultaneous disasters? Might we let, in some ways, like Grant Morrison was saying, let the grown-ups go do that stuff and fight about these things, and we contend to what we actually have to do, <laughs> to what we actually have to do, to try to take care of ourselves and one another. You know, coherence and stability come from live and local interactions. You know, not all of reality happens on that level. I totally get that. Some of reality happens on these other levels, on these big corporate and government and international levels. But we can't participate in highly leveraged, globally scaled networked activity until we've achieved some local organismic coherence for ourselves. You know, not just saying take the plank out of your own eye before you you try to take it out of everyone else's, but achieve some basic individual group local coherence and stability before you try to to amplify whatever it is you're thinking and whatever your solutions are to the world at large before you try to participate in these massive global conversations, which Look at the TV. They're not coherent conversations. These are insane conversations. We are living in a networked age, not just a digital one, but, but a connected one. And many of us are living at scale much too much of the time. That's really, really hard to do. It's not just a butterfly flapping its wings leading to a hurricane in New York, you know, but a butterfly flapping its wings and watching that hurricane and trying to flap differently to make the hurricane move or settle or do something else. That's not the way systems work. That's not the way chaos works. You know, you, you can't live your life as if everything you're doing matters to everyone all the time. My advice to myself as well as to you, I guess, my advice is stop, you know, slow down. Take a breath, do a downward dog, eat an entheogen, look into someone's eyes, look at the moon, touch grass, sit. You know, the game they're playing on TV and on the net right now will get a lot smaller in proportion to you breathing in the real world. And the ways you can change the real world for the better may just become a whole lot more apparent. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. I'm Jonathan Larson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Keo Stark, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Danny Wu, and I'm on Team Human. Hey, I'm Alex Rivetta. I'm on Team Human. I'm Sylvia Zer, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today is Caroline Jack, media historian at the Data and Society Research Institute, who specializes in how corporations promote their economic worldview to us through media. Having studied history of uh, corporate and economic propaganda, you 
in your recent talk to us at Queens College, concluded that facts are becoming less and less a part of propaganda or less and less a part of their messaging. You know, in the in the old days, we had you know white propaganda, gray propaganda, and black propaganda, and it was always fact-based. The way they distinguished between it was, well, is it a sourced fact? Is it an unsourced fact? Or is it a missourced fact? And now it feels as if it's the facts are gone. It's not even that it's uh, things aren't true. It's that it's almost that regular didactic argumentation no longer has a place in the way these companies and organizations are talking to us. Well, I think you're picking up on something important there. And this has been borne out by some of the research that people have done in fields like risk communication, where they look at how people respond to facts when they're presented to them. And it turns out that social factors, ideas about how the people you're close to feel matter more necessarily than the facts. But I think there's also a larger social shift. It seems to me that one of the things that's really striking when you look at some of these 20th century materials and then look at the way that media practices play out now is that there are layers of irony and mischief in public relations in a way that I just don't see in those 20th century materials. So I'll give you an example. I'm trying to break my addiction to Twitter. So I just say to myself, okay, I'm only going to look at Twitter in the elevator when I'm going to work or leaving work. And that'll just be, if I don't find out during that time, I don't need it. And the other day just happened to come across a tweet on Twitter. And it was a meme, which I am very fond of, which is the zoom in meme, which usually involves cute pictures of animals and some sort of wholesome kind of, I believe in you statement, but you have to zoom all over the picture to find it. And I love wholesome memes, so I was into it. And, you know, it's a picture of a stack of pancakes. This is tweeted out by Denny's. And so you zoom in and there's a little text that says, go to the upper right hand corner. And you go up there and says, go to the um, go to the butter pat, you know, and, and you're going all over this picture. And finally, you get to the message, which is, uh, I hope this distracted you from your crushing on we or something like that. And I thought, this is the best tweet I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm not more likely to go to Denny's, but I really like them for engaging in that kind of play with me, which was also really depressing at the end of the day, right? Like, they're acknowledging to me that maybe life looks pretty bleak right now and spending a little time interacting with a picture of some pancakes in hopes of finding a happy message. Right. Or the way, you know, there was a commercial way back when, when they realized we were all overloaded with commercials and they, like, give you... These 20 seconds of silence were just provided by, you know, Kimberly Clark or whatever it was. And you're like, oh, my God, has my life gotten so bad that now to have 20 seconds off is a gift from a corporation. Now, that's leveraging the environment we're in, huh? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so but I I see this a lot on Twitter and I see it other places as well. This kind of um, willingness for public relations people to drop the sort of serious mantle of legitimacy that I see in a lot of these 20th century materials and engage in play. That said, I don't know that I necessarily want to spend my time playing with corporations, right? Like, did Denny's get one over on me? Should I have spent that time, like, texting my mom? I I was engaging with a corporation that really doesn't care about me unless I buy their pancakes. Well, it is interesting. There there does seem to be a reversal between humans and corporations over the last century, maybe, where, you know, corporations used to be these establishment sort of edifices, you know, what's good for GM is good for the USA. This They were up there in Westinghouse and GE, these big giant things, and people were humans. And now we people are supposed to be, you know, brand me and Douglas Inc. And how are you going to, on LinkedIn, and you're trying to look as official as possible. And meanwhile, I'll get like, you know, I'll open up, you know, you open up Uber, and there'll be a message about Hey, kid, it's sort of, I mean, the, the tone of it is it's you and me against this New York City. New York City's trying to pass a law that's going to hurt us and hurt people and hurt drivers and come on. Or the the Airbnb ad. And I know the guy that does those ads, Douglas Atkin, who used to be at Merkley Newman, one of the first, uh, uh, what were they called, account planners in America, coming up with this very cheeky, he's British, cheeky would be the word he'd use, uh, cheeky ads for um 
hey, you know, what you going to do? Hey, San Francisco, what you going to do with that 12 million? Don't spend it all in one place. And that's really them, them arguing for deregulation of their industry. But the corporation then is the human. They're like the one of us. Well, up to a certain point, right? So the corporation is able to engage in play, right? And they are taking the mantle through things like the Airbnb billboards to make some claims about not only being like, hey, kid, we're in this together and like, wouldn't you like more bike lanes? But also making a claim about how public dollars should be spent or what kind of public taxation is okay to level. Uh, They're making these kinds of claims about civic participation and that's where it starts to get a little problematic for me, like a little troubling, because corporations, despite having all of the similarities to humans that law and custom have bestowed upon them, <laughs> the thing that they don't have is moral reasoning. And yes, people within corporations have moral reasoning. I don't want to make it out to seem as if I'm saying every corporate right. employee is but like a mustache-twirling villain. But, but the corporation as entity... Right. It has a thing that it's in the world to do, and that is to engage in commerce and generate profit as a byproduct of that commerce, right? And so when corporations start getting engaged in these kinds of civic conversations, taking the voice of not an institution in your community or an institution in your nation, like Westinghouse or whoever, but as talking to you as perhaps a neighbor might and perhaps even leveraging the neighborliness of Airbnb, right? You never see the you never see a person in an Airbnb t-shirt. You right. see the person who's renting their home to you. So this corporation is speaking in this kind of just plain folks voice about participating in democratic decision making. And that to me is very strange and a little disconcerting. Well, right. I mean, that's why I mean, I'm here fighting for team human because there are uh, there are non-human players in this game mm-hmm. that don't necessarily have human agendas or they certainly don't have human filters or human hearts or souls or whatever it is that makes us I mean I like talking about it as a sort of an ethical frame because then you don't have to get into new age ideas of that humans have something weird or special that a corporation doesn't but uh, if we're interacting with them and if they can get our filters down, if they can get us to start regarding them as human players, then all of the normal social obligations that we give to other people then come into play. Yes. And that's weird. Yes. And that puts us at a disadvantage, especially when we're talking about now I've followed your work for a while. And so we've had conversations in the past where we've talked about non-humans in the human world, particularly about the weird, fictive person that a corporation is. But now we have a whole different class of non-humans that arguably have some kind of agency or ability to act. So you look at how many bots are active on Twitter and how they're contributing, like granted very poorly, but they are taking part in that conversation. They're showing up in the metrics. You think about the algorithmic analysis that's happening behind the scenes at a lot of the startups that we're talking about. And that's a different kind of non-human that's even newer. And I think one of the things about technology that's interesting about technological breakthroughs is that it takes a while for us to narrate those and have stories that make sense about them. And I think we're still in that moment where when it comes to things like these huge data sets and the ability to analyze them in terms of drawing correlational relationships and being able to predict things on the basis of that on the fly and as the data set grows, that is something that's really new. And I don't get the sense that we have figured out how to storytell about that yet. And I don't just say we, meaning people who are trying to sell services in that field, it seems like some of them are doing quite a good job. But in terms of sense making about who we are as human beings in our everyday lives, how do those systems interact with us? We're still really grappling with what it means to have those non-human actors mm-hmm. have agency. And when the companies are the ones who are getting to frame the language around that, that's also get gets weird. So I was down at IBM Watson, mm-hmm. and they start talking, well, Watson, Watson has this much certainty about it. Watson is certain. Watson is this. Watson is that. Watson feels this, about 80% certain. Watson feels? 
Watson has certainty. Watson doesn't even exist. What? What? How can he have, or it, or they have? How can it feel it has eighty percent certainty? But if they keep talking about it that way, if that then trickles into the vernacular as to what Watson is, and Watson feels pretty certain about this, then we're not understanding what Watson is or how Watson works. Yeah, I think we're definitely. I I, I think we definitely haven't. I, I'm still keying in on you saying Watson doesn't exist, um, because I'm just trying to make sense of that. Because well, Watson is a name for a set of Watson, search processes. Oh, of course, yeah. Watson is a name that we give to things, but there's also an imagined Watson, which clearly exists because they're saying that it feels and has confidence in things. And if we're making decisions on the basis of that, is that as good as it existing? Is it? I don't know. But <laughs> I don't that's, know either. It gets weird. It yeah. gets weird. And and I just don't feel like I don't feel like people, the people on the receiving end of these language and framing choices, are aware that those choices are being made. Hmm. You know, and that's and that's sort of what. And you know, when I was I was like trying to push them back on it, saying, "Oh, so mm-hmm. you think of Watson as a he? You think of Watson has certainty? Does Watson have that?" What would be a way to phrase that that actually makes sense to you as a data scientist? Let me ask you though, do you do you think that the people who are working with Watson, did they get a sense that their decisions being made there cuz the folks in the kind of science and technology studies end of things would say there's it's very difficult to design or create a technology without values getting designed into it in the first place. Right. Well, they're arguing that they're not programming any values into Watson and that, I mean, this was I was challenging them on uh, who's going to get to use this for what and what sense of responsibility, what limits do they put on? They said, well, that's up to the clients. And I was like, mm. do you remember the last time IBM had a little problem with punch cards and, and Germans and, you know, Ooh, it was yeah. up to the client. I don't know that IBM wants to be, but that's that's their PR problem, not mine. It's more the way we the way we conceive of non-human actors, how quick we are to anthropomorphize them. Mm-hmm. And when we do anthropomorphize them, I think we end up assuming things about them that aren't true, though. They're not going to hurt me. They're not, Of course they are. They're just going to do whatever they're programmed to do. I'm not saying their algorithms are bad. I'm just saying they're not good. Yeah, yeah. This this brings something to mind for me, just around objectivity, and around neutrality. Mm. This sense that these kinds of automated reasoning are neutral, right? And that a lot of data scientists will say to you, actually, no, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? There are things that you can train a machine to look for. The training may be imperfect. The data set that it trained on may be imperfect. But I think that there's a real moment and perhaps this recent perhaps everything since the election this this sense that there's been kind of a rupture perhaps this is part of what it gets at is a sense that i see that in the, in the same period during which we moved from the post-war institutional moment into you know over the rubicon of the 70s and into this more kind of market driven chaotic time. I I think there's been these kind of moments where we fall in love with process. And I don't know that that's necessarily a problem, but I do think it's a problem when the specificities of what a process is used on fall out. So just to draw this back to, I'm constantly, I mentioned this earlier, I'm constantly grappling with the notion of propaganda. And do I use the word propaganda? Do I not? What does it mean to use it? A lot of people use it as kind of a media epithet, like that media is bad, it's propaganda. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the views that I'm coming toward is that it's important to engage with the specifics of what's going on and the specific implications of a persuasive message as opposed to saying this message uses selective presentation of the facts, therefore it's propaganda because you can't present every single fact. I mean, then you get into the kind of like, we made a map of the territory that's as big as the territory and it's useless, right? So there's going to be selection of certain things to bring forward in a particular media product. But what are the implications of that? I think getting really into the process sometimes can distract us Mm -hmm. from thinking about the actual situated social implications of technology use. So you're thinking almost more, almost what's the content rather than context all the time? Well, the context is important. It matters. But let's not, I, I think what I'm saying is let's not lose sight of the content as well. 
Right. Well, because you end up, I mean, where America is now in this weird ontologically relativistic haze, you know, where we don't know. Nobody's facts are totally true. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that these facts are just as bad as those facts. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think there's something beyond the fact that all of this talk about facts, I think, is really premised on this notion of us being able to have rational civil debate and that we'll have a marketplace of ideas and it's going to come to if if we have that then it will lead to the best conclusion and i think that the events of the last several months have really challenged that model and it's so deeply ingrained you know if you grew up in the united states this is something that you've been kind of trained into throughout your lives that this is how we do things in a democracy and in the materials that I study from the 20th century, that ideal is there. That ideal is there. You know, the folks who are working on these have spent a lot of time reading the mail they send each other and the memos they send each other. And they talk a lot about how in a democratic society, you need to convince people that what you're doing is right because they're going, the people will decide. That's back from Walter Lippmann and even little mean little Ed Bernays. I mean, that's what they understood. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So you've got, uh, you know, the two sides of that and, and yes, mean little Ed Bernays, right? It <laughs> sets everybody's stupid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But still, Bernays doing the work that he did reflects that there is still this need to in his practice, right, to convince the people, right? And I see that kind of falling out in some ways at this point. I don't see as much attention to this kind of belief in the rightness of rational debate and, you know, however misguided they might have been or however much we might agree with them as people who sit on a different part of the political spectrum. The folks that I study, I think some of them were just like, hey, we need to preserve democracy. This is the best way to do it. Some of the folks I've talked to from some of the nonprofit organizations who are now retired, I think that they came across to me as really feeling like they were doing the best that they could do in their situation to try and preserve democracy. Even in these materials that claim corporate power from the start of the New Deal forward, there's still a kind of acknowledgement of the legitimacy of the system. Because if nothing else, at least we have to convince people that this is for their own good so that they vote for it. Bingo. And they're they're happy (laughs) for it and... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, good basic basic benevolent social control. Pretty much. You know? yeah. There's a GI bill. These guys are going to be famished when they come back from the war. Let's stick them in nice houses in Levittown. Let's give them a college education. Let's get them on a mortgage because we know they'll be more stable if they owe money. You know, it's yeah. just Yeah, and it's hard to it's hard to pull out from the kinds of materials that I look at how much of that is sincere and how much of it is cynical. Right. It's because I'm entering the world that is captured on their pieces of paper. There are things right. that they wouldn't write down, right? And there are things that they might not even say. But it wasn't entirely cynical. It was I, Yeah, I don't think it, it was, was it. I really cynical. don't think so. I mean, and even if there were cynical people in there, I think there were some people who really did want America to be a great place and wanted even those stupid middle-class people to have a home and I mean you at least want them to be happy enough that they're not going to have a labor strike or do something that's disturbing yeah yeah and with uh, junior achievement specifically the folks that I've talked to from who were active in junior achievement when they were younger were really invested in the idea that doing the work that they were doing was helping to give people in a difficult doggy dog system the best edge but it doesn't seem like the current propaganda landscape, if you will, the one that uses data to figure out what are people's trigger points in order to get them to respond you know, impulsively, basically using uh, behavioral finance insights plus big data to generate individualized social media that gets people clicking on things and agitated and impulsive. That It turns out that population is more likely to elect strangely impulsive leaders. Do you think there's a one-to-one connection there? I feel like we are more uh, vulnerable to a non-communitarian democratic vision of the world when we are spending so much time 
in atomized spaces responding to individual news feeds, especially if those news feeds are concocted by people who read Hook or who go to B.J. Fogg's Captology Lab and are really just trying to manipulate short-term behavior rather than anything else. So you're pulling up something that I think is really interesting and that I just... This is this is a thing that I will fill whiteboards about and still be like, what? How does it work? But I'm 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 working it over. So perhaps we can work it over. Mm-hmm. Is one of the things that's really different from the media forms that were prevalent in the 20th century to those that, and that includes, as you know, like a whole range of different media forms, um, to those that are most prevalent now is this is a hunch of mine how things get signaled to have the endorsement of others if that is clear to you maybe i can talk Mm -hmm. it out a little bit so if i were to see ad council public service announcement in the 1970s that offered me the opportunity to write off to pueblo colorado for a leaflet about the american economic system and i saw that on nbc Okay, if someone saw it, because I would be very young at this point, but if someone saw that, then there's certain sort of implicit messages there, right? That this passed muster with NBC, it isn't complete nonsense, or they wouldn't have been able to get it on the air. There's got to, oh, look, like, it's going through the government printing office. Like, it's going through the ad council. It's good. It's it's, it's prevent forest fires or something. Well, and there's a sense that there's been multiple layers of vetting that have happened on that. And if it was complete uh, horse pucky, like, somebody might have caught it. Right. You know, not always. And that sort of uh, sense of at least tacit endorsement. Like there was a gatekeeper and the gatekeeper let this content through. That doesn't mean that it's totally reliable, of course, but it does mean that it it has a higher likelihood than something somebody just tells me on the street. Yeah, it had a, a PBS quality Right, to there's it. a certain yeah. sheen to that that says, okay, this is maybe a little bit more reliable. And I don't think that the analogy that we have now is to say like, No, nobody endorses anything. I I think it's to think about how, and this is an open question, I have no idea, how do people perceive messages as having support when they encounter them in online spaces, right? So if I'm scrolling through Twitter on the elevator, like I'm not supposed to be, if I see something that's got a lot of retweets... Or that's retweeted, that's retweeted by, you know, Cory Doctorow or Jenny or, or, you know, or Dan Gilmore or someone that you respect, you know, oh, well, if they're retweeting it, they're letting it through their filter. It must be something they want me to know about. Yeah, exactly. And that's such an interesting point because it's not only that we see this really granular kind of endorsement. It's not only that somebody made this object and then Corey and Jenny liked it. We can see that they liked it and we can right. say, oh, OK, this is put it by these specific people whose blogs have been reading for years and who like I know that they see the world like similar enough to how I see it that if they're on board with that, I'm probably on right. board. Right. And this is what they do for a living. I mean, they yes. write point point. They filter what's out there. And hopefully, you know, these are people who can pick up the phone and talk to Ed Snowden mm-hmm. and find out, you know, is this true? You know? So then what's the case when it comes to if we're talking about kind of mediated persuasion and uh, the manipulation of media narratives, then what happens when it's not like, let's say something Jenny tweeted and like a bunch of other people liked it or whatever? It's something of unknown provenance. How does that change things. For example, there's so many kind of viral images. I'm old, so I would call them image macros, but right. So you've got a photograph and it's got some impact font on top of it. And now people call those memes, which is a narrow version of a wider idea, but that's getting into the weeds. So how do we think about those as being endorsed? Do people sit and say, okay, somebody took the time to make this and then... I've seen this like eight times before when I've been scrolling through social media. That's a really opaque kind of world of endorsement. And I wonder how that works. I'm not sure. That's that's something that I would love to know right. more about. This is showing up a lot. What is that? You know, it's mm-hmm. just and eventually, I mean, as if you've ever, you know, lived in a 
really bad city over a summer, you get used to bad pop music because it's the only thing on the radio in the car. You know, so if it's in your environment, eventually, so Pepe the Frog, all right, Pepe, there he is. He's part of you. You know, it's, what are you going to do? It's yeah. in your, it's in your environment. You're, it's in your air. And by the end of that summer, did you like that song? I liked it all. Yeah, me too. I liked it all. <laughs> yeah, I, and um, people who are in different parts of media studies could speak to this better. If I could just like plug some some people that I think are particularly smart about this, uh, Ryan Milner and Whitney Phillips are both doing amazing work about this. They've been writing academically about memes and talking about memes. Uh, Whitney has a fantastic book on trolling, right, that talks about like some of these processes and how they happen. And now I'm just thinking like, what does this mean? How do we how do we recognize these ground up moments of cultural production, not just as things that are novel or original or unoriginal but funny or um, mean but mean in a playful way that Whitney talks about Mm -hmm. this a lot this kind of sense of like play that only one person knows they're playing but uh, beyond the sort of interesting dynamics of content then how are people perceiving whether other people support it that strikes me as being something that's important you know if we make our decisions about our political world on the basis of what we think people close to us think, then somebody lightheartedly tweeting out something that they think is funny and maybe don't even recognize has another meaning attached to it, it just gets very, very messy. And does it ever get to the point where that dynamic reverses and you start determining your friends group based on the memes rather than the other way around. Wow. I got to find more of my Trump people in this town. You know, it's a, I, where's my Gamergate friends? My whole family hates me for being Gamergate, so I'm going to go find. Well, do you necessarily have to find them in person, though? I don't think they do. I, I think mean, you find I, them online, I guess. And I don't, I, I don't want to, I mean, there are lots of good reasons to pick out Gamergate as a particularly horrendous, misogynistic Nightmare, but uh, I think you can pick this out across a lot of different kinds of communities where there is this kind of sense where you have your online home where people like you are. Mm -hmm. Um, I see this, and this is just in my own kind of like, this is anecdata, with the rise of platforms like Facebook. It seems like a lot of people think of Facebook as their kind of home base online or Twitter or some social Mm -hmm. media platform Whereas I kind of came up in the moment where it would be like, you'd pick the forum or the community or the blog that you wanted to spend time in and the sub forums that you liked, and that would be your home base. So this seems like a slightly different situation. As you think about the way we're trying to navigate these spaces, I mean, what, what are you, and not that you can give a final verdict on this, but what are you finding are the best ways for human beings to stay oriented and and to sort of maintain their sense of, of proportion and scale and place and well-being as we spend so much time in these realms, some of which are just digital and some of which are almost concocted to unsettle us. Hmm. Okay, that's such a good question. And And throughout the time that we've been talking tonight, I've been intermittently putting on my media historian hat and then taking off and having my just, you know, private citizen hat. And for, for for to answer that question, I think I need to be entirely in my private citizen hat because there's really the people who could answer that question for you from a scholarly perspective are not me. You're so right that it is a moment of profound disorientation. And there are some suggestions that folks who are activists make that are very good ones in terms of not just participating in the big global events. If, if you disagree with something that's happening on the national stage, by all means, participate in national events to show your dismay. But connect to people in person in your community as well. That can be around politics and activism. That can be around volunteering. A lot of it is about showing up and being part of a community. It can also be about connecting to the people who are dear to you. So making sure that, so, okay, 
I was very surprised by the election outcome. And after the election, I thought this was so shocking to me. I clearly don't know enough about what's going on. And I lost so many hours of my life to checking the news, like what's coming next? And of course, the the pace of the news cycle has been very fast. And it's just one thing after another. Um, trying to keep up with all of that could be a full-time job. And the way that our culture talks about being a citizen. It's about you've got to stay informed because in order to be responsible in a democracy, you got to you got to be on top of it, man. That's your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And yes, it is our responsibility as citizens in a democracy to remain informed, to speak our mind about things and to register our opinions at the voting booth. But we're also full human beings and We also need to seek our happiness. And that often is in connecting to people that we're close to, whether we're physically proximal to them or not. So if you're going to be spending half an hour with your phone in your hand, maybe you spend 20 minutes of it calling a friend who doesn't live nearby. You know, you've talked about how our current kind of rapid fire news environment and media environment can mess with our understandings of time. And I think perhaps a good remedy for that is connecting to people who know you outside of that rapid fire experience of time. Maybe that's family members. Maybe it's friends you've known for a long time. Maybe it's folks that you encountered in an earlier part of your professional career. Some of those folks you might not want to talk to, but there may be other people that it's worth connecting with them. Something else I would say is that consuming, there's an invitation to us to consume information at all times. And it's very seductive. But the kinds of information that are on offer to us in digital spaces often are bite-sized and of low nutritional value, for lack of a better way to say it. And uh, there's something to be said for taking the time to read a book or watch a film or listen to an album all the way through. And like, you don't have to, I don't mean like, and it's got to be on vinyl. Like, no, like just engage, give yourself the time and space to engage with one thing in a deep and lavish way. Or one person yeah, exactly. <laughs> in a deep and lavish way. Yeah. That kind of that kind of depth of engagement I think can be a real balm in times when for citizenship reasons or personal reasons or uh, work reasons there's a lot of pressure to not only be always on but always updated. So engaging with those longer spans of time, whether it's through slower media or through connections to other people that can help. And I'd be amiss to not also say it helps to get outside and uh, stick your hands on some plants now and then. Wow, it's still there? There's Yeah, yeah, they're still there outside. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, they're still outside. There have been studies that have found that working with garden soil can release uh, chemicals that make you feel good. So Wow, a little oxytocin or endorphin or something coming yeah, out? Gosh, I don't know the yeah. science behind it, but wow. my mother is a huge gardener, so she's very into this. But it's true. I, I think there's something for about caring for a plant that can be nice, yeah. caring for other people, caring for animals, just extending attention in a way that's not simply, I must take this in and mm. integrate it into my model of this chaotic and frightening world but other ways of engaging yeah well the more people you're with the more buffers you have to this very jagged wave that seems to be coming from the information space these days absolutely well thank you for sitting in this little box with me for the last 45 minutes oh it's a pleasure and uh uh thanks for being on team human Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the basement media squat here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. I'd also like to thank our friends at the Queens College School of Music, Justin Tricario, who's donated time and equipment to the podcast. 
Thanks as always to our supporters at Zago, Meetup, and The Ready. And thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for letting us use their music on today's show. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. You can also support the show through our virtual coin slot with a one-time donation or a recurring one. If you want to hear us on the radio, I do love the radio, let us know or connect us with your local NPR, community, or college station. You are on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.